You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, Covenant Hope. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to John chapter 1. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue, as Pastor Ryan said, in our Advent series here looking at the theme of hope this morning. Uh, If you are a guest, we normally walk through books of the Bible, uh, but as we think about the Advent season, we want to focus here on the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can grab the, the one in front of you. It should be black, hard covered, and turn to page 941 to follow along with us as we walk through our story uh, this morning. Really, we're going to be in one uh, verse this morning, John chapter 1, verse 29. And you can turn there to follow along with us. Are there things that you have hoped for in your life? What are those things that you've hoped for in your life? Uh, it'll be uh, eight years for Ash and I. We'll be married in January. Uh, when we were dating, uh, we had talked about getting married. One of those exciting things about being together in a dating relationship, we were super excited about getting married and talking about it, but, but I had to do something. I actually had to get down on one knee and ask her the question, will you marry me? And so uh, with the help of some friends and making this happen, uh, I, I pick her up that day. We're walking around campus at Southeastern and and I'm so nervous, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out where the ring is. I'm making sure I don't misplace it. And I'm all kinds of worried. In my back of my mind, all I can hope is that she says yes. Because if I get down on one knee this is, and she says no, this is not going to be very fun for me. And so I had this desire of hope that she was going to say yes. And so what happens is I, I take her out. Or we, we put a blanket down. We're playing cards. It was our first date. That's what we did on our first date. So I had, I had a friend that helped me put this deck of cards together and where it was actually glued together and the ring sat inside of the cards. And all I could do was shake because I, in my mind, I was so hopeful that she was going to say yes. And I got to it and asked her and she, she ended up saying yes. All our friends pop out. And the hope there In the moment, I was hoping she would say yes, and when our friends were able to celebrate that with us, that hope became realized. It was something that we could actually rejoice in. It's something that we could hold on to. It's now a tangible piece of our relationship to look forward to our wedding day. And and there are plenty of things that we put our hope in, but we must put our hope in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who, yes, even now has come in the form of a human being, has given his life on the cross. Now we await that consummation, even that wedding day when the church will be with their Lord. But his first coming provides that hope in which we can trust him and follow him and be his disciples. So this morning we're going to focus on just one verse, John 1, 29. We're going to focus on this first theme of Advent. And so you see here, although we're not lighting the candles, as we walk through uh, Advent this season, we're going to continue to put those themes up on the screen to help us focus our time on those themes, which this morning is hope. So when we look here at John chapter 1, verse 29, here's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for the world's sin because he is the Lamb of God. And what we just sang about, about Jesus being the Lamb in our place, John makes a particular statement here in the gospel accounts. 
And if you are a disciple today, you, you know that Jesus has died in your place. He is that sacrificial lamb for you. But, but what are we called to do this morning? We, what we need to do is that since Jesus is the lamb of God, we should behold him so we can follow him for eternal hope. We should behold him so we can follow him for eternal hope. Now, the introduction of John's gospel account, like the others, provides a section talking about John the Baptist. So we have two Johns here this morning, John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. John the Evangelist is the apostle who's written down this gospel account. John the Baptist, though, is the first cousin of Jesus. He explains in the verses before that he's not the Messiah, but he is to prepare the way for the Messiah, which was prophesied in Isaiah. He is a shadow of what is to come. His job is to point and to proclaim the Messiah to God's people. And this is where we pick up in the story today. The Baptist provides a list of titles for Jesus in this section. And then really they focus on the Lamb of God. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. And maybe it's the most important. And we're going to come back to this in a few minutes. We talk about Jesus being the Passover Lamb. And the Passover is a key theme throughout John's Gospel. And this part, though, of John's overall testimony about Jesus is that he is, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. The question for us this morning is, will you trust? Will you put your hope in John's testimony that Jesus is the true Lamb of God? We all place our hope in something that finally where our hope is going to be. The question is, what do you hope in? And in this one verse, there are three reasons we should place our hope in Christ. And those reasons flow out of a command. They flow out of something that John wants us to do. So look there at verse 29. The next day, that is, uh, would have been, John had been teaching the day before and the group had scattered. And so now John's picking back up where he left off the day before. But it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we see here, number one, that there's a command that John the Baptist gives us a command. He says to look, to see. Really the language and the force of this command is to behold. They don't want you to miss what is taking place. It means to focus your attention on what is coming. Neither John the Baptist nor John the Apostle want us to miss the following statement. They want us to slow down, like when we are on the interstate and we've been going very slowly because there's been a wreck and all everybody does is look over to the wreck when they're supposed to be looking at the road in front of them and they're driving. We all do it for some reason. We're looking at the wreck there. John wants us to slow down and pay attention to this statement that Jesus is the Lamb of God. We're to notice him. We're to focus on him. And we do see some of John the Baptist's Uh, followers turn and follow Jesus but understand that something has encouraged them to follow Jesus instead of John right John was at the height of his influence he had plenty of people was baptizing people in water he was proclaiming the Messiah was coming he had plenty of people to follow him something caused those people to follow Jesus instead it was him It was John the Baptist. He said, look, this is the Messiah. This is who you need to follow. 
This is who you've been waiting on. He understood that Jesus was the one that God had sent for the sins of the world. If you're a Christian this morning, I have to ask the question, do you desire to point people to Jesus? Or do you desire to point them to yourself? Do you want people to follow Jesus or do you want people to follow you? We can get tangled up. Paul says, follow me as I follow, seek after Christ. We must always point people to Jesus. And this command helps us. We are going to be focused. If we're focused on Jesus, then we get to point people to Jesus. Now, also consider the timeline. If you're a Christian, or maybe if you're not, let me catch you up to to speed. We know that from other gospel accounts, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that, that John the Baptist had some doubts. John the Baptist gets arrested, and he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are, are, are you the Messiah? Are you him? John had his own doubts, but he knows in this statement that Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's not, it's not out of total understanding. It's out of pure hope that he knows, yes, that this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he, sa- he says, look at him. I may not understand every aspect of that, but I know that he is the Messiah, the one sent by God. Now, we have an understanding of Jesus, right, because of the, of the Bible, because of his first coming, but not a full understanding. We don't know Jesus completely. We will only know him fully when he comes back the second time, the second advent, when he returns for his people. This is a good point for us to consider. That when we behold Jesus, it's one of the steps in becoming like Jesus. That oftentimes we don't have all the understanding, all of it wrapped up in a nice neat bow, but we're taking steps to follow Jesus. You must behold Jesus before you can begin to have faith and hope in him. And so will you focus on him? John, both Johns want us to focus on Jesus. But before we move on to those reasons for hope, we need to consider why we need hope in the first place. Right? You see, John the Baptist, really the entire Bible, if we're honest, assumes our need for hope. We need hope because sin has broken our world. We have seen that this throughout the, our whole study throughout the book of Genesis. Right? We know that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. That they ushered in sin because of their rebellion and mistrust of God. We know that sin separates us from God. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And they would not be allowed to be in his presence because our God is holy. We know that sin separates us from each other. We begin to see those relational dynamics play out. And then ultimately we know that sin separates from true life. That death enters into the world because of sin. We need hope because there's a problem. But often we want to shield ourselves away from that problem. It would like being going, go to the doctor and tell them that you're sick and, you know, and say, he, he, he provides a medicine for you. And you say, you know what, I don't want to take that. I'm good. I don't, I don't need that. The Bible assumes that we are sinful. And so if there's going to be hope, it's because there is a bad situation. There is something that is not good for us. The question, though, is how do you view sin? Is sin just a set of behaviors and actions that need fixing? 
or sin a much bigger problem? Does it go deeper than that? Is sin more complex than just a set of actions? You see, church, the world views sin as just actions. I'm not a bad person. I just did something bad. I'm a good person that got caught up in the wrong thing. Think about it this way. My family, uh, we watch Christmas movies uh, during the Christmas season. And then one of those, one of my favorite Christmas uh, movies, uh, trilogies, is The Santa Claus, where Tim Allen uh, becomes Santa Claus and takes on the mantle. And there's three movies about it. You should go watch them. They're, they're fantastic. But we've already watched two of them this Christmas season. And in the second movie, they focus on the naughty list. Right, it's, 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 really, it's a really important thing. Charlie, the son of Santa Claus, gets put on the naughty list. And so he has to leave uh, the North Pole to go be with Charlie so that he can get him off the naughty list. Well, while he's gone, they make a life-size plastic Santa Claus and who takes over the North Pole and uh, puts every child on the naughty list. And so the movie itself is literally all about kids being on the naughty list but how do you get on that list if you are bad right you know the jingle he knows if you've been bad or good right that this is what the movie is pushing toward it says if you are good then santa will visit you but if you are bad then you're going to get cold that's a that's a terrible way to live right that it because i know if you really were to weigh out my actions during the year i don't deserve any christmas presents but that's the point it's contrary to the gospel it's not about how good we can be because we can't change the core of who we are. That there is sin deeper than just our actions. Consider Colossians 1.21. As Pastor Ryan just read Colossians 1.15-20. Paul says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. Take just a moment and understand that there's hope away from sin, but that sin must be dealt with. And Paul says that you were sinful, alienated from God, which then created hostility, which played itself out in evil deeds, right? The deeds are, are just the description of what's inside of us. It's not actually, it's not the, the, only the wrong thing. It's actually pointing to something deeper in our hearts, our only hope is actually a, for, a full heart transformation. We need a heart transplant that changes that we desire to obey God. Church, if sin is this complex and deep, then where does our hope come from? If sin is some complex, we need a, a comprehensive response to that sin. This is what John the Baptist is talking about. This is what... John 1.29 is speaking to us. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just, not just our sinful actions, but sin itself Jesus deals with. If you're a Christian this morning, remember the reasons that you have hope. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I ask you to consider these reasons. So let me, let me give you those reasons now. Reason number one that we have hope. Jesus provides a sacrifice. Jesus provides a sacrifice. Look back there at verse 29. John the Baptist says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The title here is Lamb of God. It's, it's a title that isn't used in any other gospel account. 
It is probably a summary of two biblical ideas, both the servant and the lamb, that Jesus is, as we'll see here in just a moment, from Isaiah 53, he is the lamb being led to a slaughter, the the suffering servant. This lamb, though, is special. He is very special. You see, we probably don't get the initial force or weight of this statement, right? We're not around many lambs. Today, the only time I get to do that is when I go to Charlie's Kebab and get some Euro meat. But after, other than that, I don't go, I'm not around lambs much. But lambs held a great significance in the first century, particularly in God's, God's people and their lives. First, the lamb was a symbol of sacrifice in the Old Testament. God provided a ram. If you remember way back in Genesis chapter 22, God provided a ram, that's a male lamb, to sacrifice instead of Isaac. So clearly, early in the Old Testament, a lamb is a picture of sacrifice. Second, though, the lamb reminded them of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, after God has laid down the gauntlet on Egypt, he has laid down multiple miraculous events. He tells them that the angel of death, the destroyer, is coming to take the firstborn. And the only way to get out of that is if you take a lamb and you slaughter it and you take its blood and you put it on your doorpost so that at that night when the, when the destroyer comes, then he would pass over your house and keep your firstborn alive. The Passover lamb protected God's people from his judgment. The lamb was a sacrifice for God's judgment against the sinfulness of Egypt. But it wasn't because somehow Israel was better and Egypt was bad. No, he says, if you don't put this over your doorpost, even you will be subject to that judgment. This lamb was was a, a symbol of God's passing over. And so they would celebrate that every year. But this lamb was only good for one night. Right? He had to do it every year. Jesus is now this final Passover lamb. But thirdly, the Israelites were commanded to sacrifice guilt offerings before the Lord for their sin. We see this in Leviticus 14 and number six, that they would continuously have to provide a guilt offering. You had to go to the temple and you had to wait in line and you had to be there and take your lamb and sacrifice it on the altar. Every day, even twice a day. All of these lambs, though, pointed to the perfect lamb, the Messiah, who was going to come. Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah in chapter 53 of his book. Verses 6 and 7 say this. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, that would be the Messiah, for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the lamb of God who offers himself as a sacrifice. You might ask, why did he do that? Hebrews 9.22 tells us that blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. You won't be able to live up to God's standard. Our hope is neither in our ability to be perfect or, nor in a continued sacrifice of an imperfect animal. Our hope is in the lamb who was perfect and was slain for our pardon. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. 
We no longer need to make daily sacrifices. I don't have to go get a lamb in the market and take it to the temple to be sacrificed. We only need to trust in Jesus as the lamb once and for all, for all time. Our hope is in Christ, our sacrificial lamb. 1 John chapter 2 explains it really well. John, when he's writing to the churches, he says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. That Jesus offers himself to anyone who would place their hope in him. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So the first reason we have hope in this lamb is because he provides a sacrifice. But the second reason we have hope is that Jesus provides a substitute. Jesus provides a substitute. Think about those lambs again. Who had to bring those lambs to be sacrificed? The sinner did. The priest didn't. The sinner had to bring the lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. But think about Jesus. Jesus was sent by God the Father for us. God didn't need the sacrifice. We did. He provides a substitute. Jesus took our place when we needed it, not because God needed it. This is God's provision for us. <clears throat> when we think about a substitute, though, we often think about of something or someone being lesser, right? Right, when you have a substitute teacher, it's not your main teacher. They're not the, not the teacher you have every day. And so you think you can get away with more. Right? When you have a substitute teacher, you play these little games behind their back because they're not used to you and they don't know you're actually a little mischievous person in the classroom. That was me. Sorry, I wasn't very kind to my substitute teachers growing up. But, or if you think about a, uh, an athlete, right? You think about a sub coming off the bench. It's not one of the starting five. So they're not as good as the starting five on the floor. And so you're getting a substitute, you're getting a sub. But this isn't the case with Jesus. Jesus isn't like the normal subs that we get. Jesus is better than we are. Jesus is better. Instead of, of us having to make a sacrifice for ourselves, Jesus substitutes himself for us. Because we needed something more. And so Jesus stands in the way where we deserved to be sacrificed. We deserved his death. We deserved the penalty of our sin. But Jesus subs himself in willingly so that now we can be living sacrifices, as Paul talks about in Romans 12. So that when Jesus gave his life for us, dying on the cross, taking the penalty of sin, was buried three days, but was raised to new life. Now Jesus says, you know what? You don't have to offer yourself as a dead sacrifice. You can offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That daily you can give your life over to Jesus because he is able to help you. That you can actually have a piece of tangible hope. Church, the question is, do you see a need for a substitute? Or do you have everything put together? Do you have all the answers? Do, do you check every Christian thing off in your life? Or do you actually see that you need a substitute? You need someone better than you. 
It doesn't take away that God loves you and that you are made in his image. Absolutely not. But what it says is that are you willing to say that Jesus is better and must die in my place? Jesus is the right substitute for us, a better substitute. Our hope is that Jesus provides that substitution for us. But the third reason we can have hope is Jesus provides satisfaction. Jesus provides satisfaction. When we think about this verse in John chapter 1, we must not forget the penalty for sin. We must consider God's response to sin. It could be easy to close our eyes and cover our ears to the fact that God pours out his wrath on sin. But the Bible is very clear that a holy God must respond to sin in a particular way. Over and over and over again, we see God's wrath poured out on sin. In the Old Testament, we see God's wrath poured out on sin through the law. That there is a system by which sin must be atoned for. We see God wipe out kings and nations who are sinful and who do not live up to this standard. In the New Testament, we see God stand opposed to sin. Just think about Romans 1.18. Where Paul writes, for God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Or even Ephesians 2, 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath. A holy God must respond to sin in a right way. And that is pouring his wrath out on sin. Often people paint God in the Old Testament as wrathful, but God in the New Testament as loving. But don't we want God to be both? Right? Don't we want sin to incur a, a penalty, to incur wrath? Some of you may struggle with the fact that God does have wrath, that he does pour it out on sin, but this is how the Bible explains it to us. It may be easy to think that wrath is the opposite of love, but that's not the case. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is indifference. Wrath is what follows from true love. That is the outworking of God's love for us against sin. That sin has so deformed and so broken us in our world that he will pour out his wrath on sin to make things right. You see, if God failed to hate sin, then his love would be deficient for us. I heard a pastor explain it this way. He said, it helps to understand that God's wrath is not a, def a defect in his character, but a feature of his goodness. It is because God is good that he will pour out wrath on which is evil. It is pre precisely because he loves us that he will destroy what destroys us. He says, if I love my daughter and see someone attacking her, it is because I love her that I will pour out my wrath on her attacker. No love, no wrath. It is this wrath, wrath on sin that Jesus satisfies. That if we, we want God to rectify the wrongs in the world, but what we, don't, we, what we often forget is that we are a part of those wrongs and that God couldn't just wipe out sin because then we would have been wiped out. And so what God does is he sends his son in our place to satisfy that wrath. 
But you see, a culmination of God's love and his justice meet on Calvary. That God would send his son into the world to be the lamb of God, to offer himself as the sacrifice, as the substitute, only because he can satisfy God's wrath. But how? Why can Jesus satisfy God's wrath? If you look look further down in this chapter, John the Baptist gives another title for for Jesus. This title explains exactly why Jesus can satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus is the Son of God, in verse 34. Jesus is not only a man. He's not only God. He is the God-man. He put on flesh that he would be tempted in the same ways we are, that he would know what it means to walk here on this earth in the mess, in the muck, in, in all of what's going on. But yet he lived a perfect life and offered that life up for us. The reason that Jesus can satisfy God's wrath is because he is perfect, holy, righteous, even when we couldn't be. God is pleased in his son. And you remember that quote when Jesus goes to be baptized and and the heavens open up and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus can satisfy God's wrath because God is fully pleased in Christ. It is this son, Jesus, that God sent to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute, and to perfectly satisfy his wrath. You see, God doesn't have to pour out his wrath on sin anymore. Because he poured it out on Jesus. That Jesus being that sacrifice, that Jesus took that wrath, he doesn't have to pour out his wrath on his people anymore. There will be a day when God's wrath is totally satisfied in which God will take care of every evil, every wicked thing in our world. And that won't happen until Jesus returns. So you see, we really live in between two worlds. We live in between the hope of the first coming that we know is true and the hope of the second coming in which we know God will right all things. And this hope now pushes us forward, hoping daily that our God will return for us and that he will make everything right. That's the only hope in this world, that God loves us and sent his son for us and that he will right every wrong. This is why Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the the tense. I'm not to be an English teacher this morning, but notice the tense of that phrase. He takes away the sin of the world. That's continually. He doesn't stop. Anyone who wants to come to him can have their sins paid for. It's an offer. Until he comes back, if you will submit your life to him in faith, then your sins can be paid for. Jesus is able to continually take away anyone's sin, including ours. So any sin I commit today or tomorrow, Jesus pays for that. That's how powerful, that's how effective his sacrifice was for me. He doesn't have to get back on the cross, but his sacrifice was once and for all. He offers continual hope to anyone who places their hope in him. Jesus' sacrifice is perpetual in its effect. It continues. So church, our hope this Christmas season must be in Christ. Will you place it in him? Will you place your hope with all that you are in him every day? 
I challenge you this Christmas season to just get in the habit every day. Wake up and say, God, my hope is in you. Will you help me live that out? Every day, God, my hope is in you. Will you help me live that out? And then will you help your families? Point them to Jesus. If you're a dad, point your wife to, if you're a husband, point your wife to, to hope in Jesus, not anything that you do or you can provide. If you're a mom in the room this morning, point your children's hope to Jesus. Remind them of the story every day. This is how much God loves you. Help our church hope in Jesus every day. In all of our conversations, what our hope that our sins have been paid for calls us to love more, to reach out more, to care more, that our church will be shaped by this kind of hope that our God has sent and done everything necessary for us to be made right with him, that you would trust him and submit your life to him. This is our hope, that God is our, our lamb, our sacrifice, our substitute, and ultimately satisfied, that God is satisfied in Christ. So church, I pray that you will put your hope in him. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we proclaim this morning that our hope is in nothing else. We put our hope in nothing else other than Jesus. That we trust him over all things. That he is the reason we can look forward to the second coming. That he is the reason that we can, we can make it through this life not limping, but joyous that we can demonstrate love to others because our hope is in a God who has done everything needed for us to be saved. And so God, I pray this morning that the hope of the first coming propels us to live for the second coming. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.